What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, September 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how goes it on this fine Friday? Maddie, it goes pretty well, dude. It was great. To- oh, shoot. Okay. Uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I'll see you next. I'll see you next year, Matt. We'll try. We'll try. I was supposed to hang out with Nick. Uh, <laughs> I was put on on medical protocol uh, due to me getting COVID again. So, yeah, that was fun. That was definitely fun. Not seeing you. <laughs> Just hanging out inside all week. You are two for two on getting COVID the week before I'm about to see you. Yeah, next time I'm just going to put myself in a bubble and uh, we'll, we'll do it that way. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pre-quarantine in order to see each other. 2023. 2024 at this rate. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Other than that, pretty good week. Uh, like very uneventful. I, I have no updates. I, I just I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do with, when, you, when you have COVID. You just literally watch TV, read a book, listen to music, stay inside. What are you going to do? Yeah. For the concerned listeners, uh, I, I was feeling fine, just tired. So is what it is. Yeah. All right. We got a jam packed show for you today. We're going to get right into it. Buckle up. Let's do it, Nick. Let's do it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Yes. And if you like our show, make sure to turn on notifications wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode anywhere. All right. Time for our quick hits. And the first one is by Nick Juden and Ashton Pittman of The Guardian, who write, Running Water Returns in Mississippi Capital but it's still undrinkable. There is a boil water notice for residents in Jackson, Mississippi, but videos have emerged of dark brown water coming out of sinks and bathtub faucets this week. People of Jackson have had to boil water intermittently for years, so this is unfortunately nothing new, but last week floods overwhelmed the city's water treatment plant and cut the water supply for over 160,000 majority black residents. Emergency efforts have restored running water, but like Nick said in the headline, this water is still not drinkable. Some of the city's pipes are over 100 years old, and the city is undergoing lawsuits from residents who say the old lead pipes poisoned them and stunted their growth as children. The article says that this crisis has brought focus to America's outdated water infrastructure, and whether it is fit for purpose amid climate crisis-related weather events of increasing severity. Mississippi's governor, Tate Reeves, said this water system broke over several years and it would be inaccurate to claim it is totally solved in a matter of less than a week. It's good that toilets are flushing and fires can be put out, but water is still not drinkable here. And like Reeves said, the root cause of this has not been addressed. Two weeks ago, children in Jackson's public schools were learning virtually because the schools did not have water. But as of last week, students were back in person. Water quality testing is still ongoing, and two days of successful testing across multiple sites are needed before Jackson's water can be considered safe to drink. 
The authors point out that any emergency fixes here are basically just bandages on an old and failing water system that can break at any time. Jackson's water system failed as recently as 2021 during a winter freeze that left residents without water for about a month. Yeah, it's kind of wild just how important updating your infrastructure is. And unfortunately, with a system like your water system, it's really hard to overhaul such a massive system like that. You know, a city of 160,000 people yeah, all relying on this water system. It's, it's not something you can just do overnight. So this is kind of the issue with infrastructure and why the infrastructure bill that passed in the U.S. last year is so important to basically overhaul all of these sort of issues and make sure that as climate-related storms that are going to increase flooding, for example, increase, we don't run into this issue, not just in Jackson, but across the U.S. more often. Yeah, 100%. So this scenario has led state officials to discuss a permanent fix, and Jackson's mayor, Chakwe Antar Lumumba, has spoken with private contractors to operate and maintain the water system. Privatization could be good, but also could be very controversial for a number of reasons, including how well the system would actually work and how much a private company could charge for water, which I'd like to add is a basic human right. Yeah, definitely. Michael Regan, the EPA administrator, said that Jackson could be eligible for tens of millions in U.S. government loans, in addition to funds under Joe Biden's recent infrastructure package. But, quote, we need to see a plan that demonstrates how those resources will be spent and what they will be spent on. Yeah, and that makes sense. You know, a a lot of times people are always worried about government corruption. Fair. So in this case, the EPA says there are tens of millions of dollars that could help overhaul this system. We just need to see how you're going to do it. So I hope that, you know, Mississippi's governor and Jackson's mayor meet with whomever they need to meet with in order to get this planning underway and really put together a good comprehensive plan to ensure that 160,000 people don't lose their access to water twice in two years. You know what I mean? Like you said, the last one was, was 2021 during flooding. And now we have it again where it's, you know, more flooding and more people losing access to clean drinking water, which is something that we need to survive. Yeah. That's exactly my point too. Like by no means is this an easy issue to fix. Like you said, it's, it's a very um, tedious process of, of going in and, and figuring out where the issue is coming from. And for a city, especially of over 160,000 people. But with that being said, it's unacceptable to not have water that you can just turn on your faucet and use, Mm -hmm. like let alone to just like boil pasta or to use in, I don't know, anything, making dough, anything. Drinking. (laughs) Drinking. Yeah. Like anything at all. Yeah. And it's tough because, you know, you look at certain cities that that aren't as affluent as some of your major cities. I mean, 160,000 people is a lot, but we're not talking about the city the size of New York, Boston, D.C., Los Angeles, something like that. It's still substantial to have a state capital with that many people running into this issue time and time again. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully this is the, the push that's needed. Unfortunately, Last year should have been the push that was needed. Before that, I'm sure there was another instance where we could say that should have been the push that was needed. But now with these funds available from the federal government, maybe the push happened earlier. They just had no way of going about it. Maybe this time it's the right circumstances to say, 
hey, we're actually going to apply for this federal funding and we're going to overhaul the system. Yeah, that'd be great. Definitely something we'll keep an eye on. And let's go ahead and get into our next one here. It is titled, Climate Change is Ravaging the Colorado River. There's a Model to Avert the Worst by Henry Fountain of the New York Times. And we linked the Salt Lake Tribune version of this article, so it will be free for listeners to read. Yeah, we'll try to do that more often for listeners. So you can check out the source material if you want to read more. I understand that uh, you know New York Times has a paywall. Sometimes the articles get republished, so we'll, we'll try to be more inclusive there. For listeners who haven't heard, the Colorado River is experiencing extreme water shortage, and we've kind of alluded to it on the show and talking about Lake Mead, but I don't think we've really covered the Colorado River in full. This article talks about the water managers of the Yakima River Basin in central Washington state, where fighting over water rights resembles what's going on with the Colorado River right now. Fountain writes, quote, they know what it's like to be desperate. While drought, climate change, population growth, and agriculture shrink water supplies to crisis levels. Yakima's water managers understand the situation that the seven states within the Colorado River Basin are currently in, which is, you know, being unable to agree on the water cuts needed to prevent the river from drying up. A decade ago, Yakima's water managers were spending more times in courtrooms than at conference tables, according to Henry Fountain. So they created a plan to manage the Yakima River and its tributaries for 30 years to make sure that there was a stable water supply. While the situation at Yakima is not the same as the one in Colorado, there are enough similarities to use it as a model for water conservation. Yeah, and the Environmental Defense Fund's Vice President for Climate Resilient Water Systems, Maurice Hall, says it will take collaboration on an unprecedented level. To better understand what can work for Colorado, let's talk about what has worked for Yakima. So climate change and recurring drought had greatly decreased the water supply for irrigation. Conservationists were concerned that habitats were drying up. Old dams had blocked the passage of fish, all but eliminating the trout and salmon that the indigenous Yakima nation had harvested for centuries. In droughts, water allocations to many farms were cut. This led to years of legal battles that left no one happy, until Ron Van Gundy and Phil Rigdon, two people who actually opposed a new dam for different reasons, sat down outside of court to talk about a plan for better water management. The article actually tells a, a funny story of when they first sat down and one of them says to the other, hey, can I talk to you like outside of court? And they're like, Are, will our lawyers allow it? Probably not, but sure. <laughs> so it's you just like went against, you know, legal advice and just talked this plan out. So a decade into that plan, there are now tens of millions of dollars worth of irrigation improvement projects, measures to increase reservoir storage and removing barriers to fish. So in short, there's projects impacting all types of water usage and sustaining the Yakima River's water supply. The Colorado River Basin sees similar desperation today with its two main reservoirs at all-time lows. And the federal government is asking the seven states that use the river to cut consumption by up to one-third by next year. With climate change making drought worse, more long-term cuts will likely be needed. These states have negotiated some agreements over Lake Mead in the past few years, but there needs to be better collaboration between the upper and lower basins for this to all work. The lower basin has continued to use their allotted share or more of the water supply, and that includes California, Nevada, and Arizona. The upper basin, so Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, have all used less than their allotted shares as of late. So the Yakima River is only about one-seventh the size of the Colorado River, and only lies within one state, 
with one native tribe having rights to it. The Colorado River flows through seven states and has 30 tribes with rights to it. These situations are not the same, so some doubt that Yakima can be used as a true model for conservation, but those familiar with the plan say that the shared sacrifice for the betterment of everyone along the river can definitely apply here. Yeah, it's one of those situations where it's likely that an agreement will leave none of the parties involved happy, but without any sort of agreement, every party involved will be way, way worse off. Yeah. So it's a real trade-off between, hey, it sucks now, you know, we're cutting our water usage, or it sucks a lot later because we don't have water to cut the usage of. And in this case, you know, we're talking about one state and one native tribe having rights to a river. So I get the doubters saying like, hey, these situations are not the same. We can't compare them. But like they said, that shared sacrifice of, hey, we're going to cut our usage all along this river that can be applied to those seven states and the 30 tribes along the Colorado River, even if obviously it's much harder to collaborate. I think everyone's going to be on board with the fact that even if this sucks, we want to have water to drink. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 It's a matter of like, hey, do you want to have to move your family, like possibly across the country because you just straight up ran out of water in this part of the, in this part of the world and in your house? Like that's something that no one wants to deal with. So it's just better to get it done now, figure out a plan that works for everyone. This is an agreement that has to be made or otherwise it's just going to get completely, completely out of hand. Yeah. Something we've talked about on the show and something we've talked about with guests on the show is the thing with water rights is a lot of these rivers, the rights were allocated while rivers were at an all time high. Yeah. So you had people using that much water and then as the river naturally kind of balanced out, you know, every year there's going to be different water levels. People were still using enough water as if it was still at an all time high, yep. even though frankly it wasn't. So that's why we're kind of over dipping, using way more water than we have. And, and in this mess that we find ourselves in. Yeah, definitely. And there's less snowpack, right? Yep. That's another issue yeah. with climate change. So I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a really tough situation that, like you said, I just hope that they can come to this agreement and, and figure it all out. Yeah, agreed. Let's, let's hope for that. Okay, our next story is from The Guardian's Adam Gabbard, who writes, Wildfire of Disinformation, How Chevron Exploits a News Desert. All right, we're going to keep this one pretty quick just for the sake of time, but uh, definitely check out this article. It's a lot of more anecdotal evidence as to what went on in this story, but the gist of the story is that local newspapers have struggled over the past two decades the United States has lost over one-fourth of its newspapers since 2005, and that creates a term they're calling news deserts, which, similar to food deserts, where a region doesn't have enough food availability and there's not enough healthy produce, in this case, a news desert would be a region that doesn't have much local news getting reported. This has created an opening for companies to step in and fill that gap, which unfortunately Chevron has started doing in the oil-rich Permian Basin in Texas. Chevron's Permian Proud site was launched this month, and it does say on the site that it's sponsored by Chevron. So that's at least a good silver lining there. You know, they're calling out their own biases. <laughs> the site mixes in stories about how well Chevron is doing in the region. And two of the headlines from this month include new solar energy field in Permian Basin to lower Chevron's carbon intensity. And also independent analysis gives Chevron highest environmental rating 
in Permian Basin. This has happened several other times in the past few years, and most of the publications do their best to hide where the funding of their local newspaper comes from. Yeah, it's a very, very simple formula. You open up a media publication, you only post stuff that makes you look good, you cherry pick statistics to make yourself look good when you shouldn't look good. So if this sounds very shady, it's because, well, this is very, very shady. (laughs) The following quote from the article is very concerning for pretty much anyone out there who likes this whole democracy thing we have going on here. So, quote, last November, an investigation by Popular Information found that right-wing operatives had used the sprawling network of fake news sites to target crucial state elections, including the Virginia governor's race in 2021. As the Virginia election loomed, 28 sites, all run by Metric Media, published almost 5,000 articles about critical race theory in schools, a frequently misrepresented issue that has become a call to arms and to the ballot box among the right wing. So if this sounds scary, it should, because in this case, you're talking about Chevron being able to do the exact same thing when unfortunately climate change has become a political issue, even though it really never should have. Yeah. The author also writes that it is unclear, however, how many people reading the site will be able to tell the difference between local information and Chevron's PR fluff. So this is just a classic case. I think we did an episode on this um, with the Murdoch thing in Sky News. Yeah. Not that long ago. Very similar thing. Like just throwing into the world and just hoping that some of it sticks. Like hoping someone who's not actually going to read this, read into the source and where, not really care about where they got their news is just going to take it as fact. Yeah, and unfortunately, look, it's an oil-rich region that we're talking about in this Permian Basin in Texas. So presumably, I don't know enough about it, but presumably people there are probably pretty big on oil because if it's an oil-rich region, you got to assume that a lot of people made their livelihood, put food on their table, bought their homes off of oil-related jobs. Yeah. So to see something like this where it's like, oh, Chevron's got the the most green oil, whatever that means, like... It's it's so annoying, frankly, yeah. like for lack of a better term, that people are going to read this. And, you know, the same people that always said, like, don't believe everything you read online. Unfortunately, a lot of them believe everything they read online. <laughs> so this is that scenario playing out. <laughs> oh, truer words have not been spoken, Matt. That one cut deep, too, because that's that's so true. And I guarantee you're not the only person who heard that. That's like, yeah. <laughs> All right, we are going to get into a break right now, but after that, we will have a couple more quick hits for you. Stay tuned. The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. 
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Doomsday Glacier is teetering even closer to disaster than scientists thought. New seafloor map shows by MSN's Harry Baker. All right, some more bad news in the glacial sea ice department as underwater robots that looked at Antarctica's Thwaites Glacier saw that it underwent periods of rapid retreat within the last few centuries, which could be triggered again by climate change-related melting. The glacier had been nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier, and the author writes that it may meet its doom sooner than expected, with an extreme spike in ice loss. Thwaites Glacier is around the size of Florida, or the entirety of the United Kingdom, and is slowly melting into the ocean off of West Antarctica. If it were to melt, it would increase global sea level rise by 3 to 10 feet, which if you listen to, I think it was last week when we talked about, you know, how big of an impact one foot of sea level rise is, Mm. this is at at the very least 3 feet, so not great. Um, And it's retreating twice as fast as it was 30 years ago due to climate change. So currently, it's losing around 50 billion tons of ice every single year. If waters continue to melt, away the glacier's base, it will detach from its grounding points, which keep it in place. Grounding points slow a glacier's sliding into the water even as it melts. So larger chunks of ice melt slower than smaller ice blocks. So Thwaites detaching from its current grounding point, around 984 feet underwater, could accelerate the potential sea level rise from its melting. Yeah, just think ice cubes in your drink. Everybody wants the big ice cubes because they don't really melt as quickly. They don't dilute your water. Mm -hmm. It's the same deal here. So a quick quote from the article, the new findings are worrying because they show that the Thwaites Glacier experienced pulses of very rapid retreat even before the effects of climate change increase the current rate of ice loss. It shows that the glacier has the potential to accelerate much faster if it becomes detached from its current grounding point and anchors to a subsequent bump-like grounding point. That data is according to Alistair Graham, the lead researcher of the study that found this information. So this is something that was happening naturally, but climate change has basically taken away any chance for the environment to balance out the glacial retreat naturally. As waters have gotten hotter, they are unable to regulate the glacial loss with natural cooling periods. And that warm water is proving to be a twofold problem as warm water beneath the glacier is melting away basically the underbelly of the ice which can accelerate the glacier breaking off from its grounding point. So, yeah, this is uh, this is not great. And unfortunately, this was likely happening naturally, but climate change has both accelerated it and made it so that those natural periods of cooling that come after natural periods of warming are not as cool. And those natural periods of warming are much hotter. So there's no real opportunity for that sea ice to refreeze. And all we're seeing now is melting period after melting period. That's going to add up. Right. So there's no like regeneration period. Yeah, exactly. So should we just be hoping for like the most freezing ice cold winter of all time this year? Is that the fix here? Like, I don't know. I mean, I think like, like, look, that would help. But I think honestly, the, the game plan here is like, this is likely going to detach. We need scientists and engineers to figure out how to solve this one. And it's going to rely a lot on like building up seawalls, creating jetties, putting in oysters to mitigate storm surge. Like it's more about adaptation than mitigation at this point for, for something like this. Like sea level rise is unfortunately 
here. Yeah. Just like damage control at that point. Wow. Yeah. All right. Let's get into our last quick hit of the week. And it is by Bob Woods of CNBC. And he writes, climate change could bring back wind as the future power source for ocean cargo ships. This week's edition of Embrace Tradition on the planet today means potentially (laughs) using wind to power international trade like our ancestors before us. Nick, cue the music from Moana. No, I'm just kidding. I have the rights to that. (laughs) Um, We are going to talk about some of the other solutions that are more futuristic, but I'm talking, I'm talking... Moana of Moto Nui, baby. <laughs> the shipping industry accounts for around 3% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions currently, which, look, I mean, that, that's a small amount compared to other sectors. But like we say all the time here, everything in climate change mitigation adds up. Yeah. So international trade continues to grow and with it, emissions from trade continues to increase. More than 80% of all international trade relies on cargo ships, which means that by 2050, Scientists predict shipping could account for 17% of all greenhouse gases. In 2018, the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, adopted a strategy to reduce greenhouse gases by 50% by 2050 compared to 2008 levels. Critics believe this number should be 100% by 2050, or honestly, preferably sooner. Making matters worse, only 33 out of the largest 94 shipping companies have a policy to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and or are committed to the IMO's goal. The private sector has taken some steps to lower the impact of shipping it creates, such as creating green corridors, which are shipping routes and ports that support zero emission solutions. The private sector has also seen 29 institutions sign the Poseidon Principles, which is an agreement that aims to cut emissions when lending to shipping companies. The author writes that the global supply chain is designed for fast deliveries, so the bets are being made on the development of low-emission or zero-emission fuels, including green methanol, hydrogen, liquid natural gas, and ammonia. Those fuels would reduce or replace the molasses-thick, noxious bunker fuel that feeds most ships' massive diesel engines. All right, so we're going to break down those potential fuel sources that can decrease shipping's emissions. So the first is green methanol. Most methanol today comes from fossil fuels, but companies are now testing making methanol from agricultural residues and waste. Another option is e-methanol, which combines carbon dioxide with hydrogen produced from water using renewable energy. The second solution could be liquid natural gas, which essentially aims to reduce emissions but not remove them entirely. This would still emit methane and would extend the use of carbon-based fuels for at least 20 years. So honestly, this one doesn't do it for me. The third is green ammonia, and we already have a ton of supply of ammonia, and it can be made environmentally friendly by combining green hydrogen with nitrogen from the air. The main drawback here is that it can be toxic to humans and marine life. So again, it's better but it's not perfect. This one doesn't really do it for me. The fourth option is electric robo-ships. So Mitsubishi is working on this right now, and it replaces a traditional diesel engine with a hybrid electric system that includes storage batteries, propellers, motors, switchboards, and generators. E5 is collaborating with another Japanese ship builder, Asahi Tanker, to build a pair of all-electric zero-emissions tankers powered by large-capacity lithium-ion batteries. The main issues here are the same issues that we see for electric cars, 
travel range, and battery charging. And finally, we have wind power. There are currently 20 large vessels in the world that have some sort of wind assistance technology. So we're not talking about sails navigating the winds here. We're talking about tall cylinders on the ship deck that take in the wind and use it to generate power that pushes the ship forward. So they're essentially running the same way that a traditional sail would, but since the ships are much larger, they need to use the energy more efficiently. All right, Nick, what are you thinking? Which, which one or two is, is your favorite option out of these five? I, li- I like wind power and I like electric robo ships. Yeah. Maybe, maybe because electric robo ships sounds cool. Um, but no, I think it's actually a really good idea. The only issue, like, the, like it said in the article, is travel range. Yep. These things are out at, out at sea for how long? You know, like they're out for months, I feel like sometimes. So that could definitely be a big issue. But wind power, absolutely. I mean, there's a bunch of wind when you're on the water anyway. Mm-hmm. So to be able to harvest that and, and use it towards creating energy for the ship that you're on, that's awesome. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's cool because these are basically like big, big cylinder turbines almost where it's just the wind comes in and keeps a turbine spinning and that's creating your power as you go. So I I do think those are really cool. I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Um, As for the robo ships, love the idea. My concern is because of the travel range, you know, a way around that is to put in a lot of battery storage how much weight are we going to put into these ships just for storage? Like at at what point is it better to have in this case, like those extra wind turbines up top? And I don't know, maybe the batteries are are lighter than the wind turbines. I I don't have the specs on those, but it's interesting. It's, it's something that, you know, engineers are definitely going to have to look into and, and come up with a cool plan here, but it's, it's very cool to see all of these different potential solutions and, hopefully at least one or two of them catch on here. Unfortunately, it seems like so far, these are all just hypotheticals that a few companies are working on. Right. But you know, if more of them sign on, like this could be, this could be huge. Yeah. It it reminds me of like when they come out with like a concept car and it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's never going to come out, but I hope this is different. I hope this is actually going to come out one day. Um, I do think it's actually a really good idea. So Hopefully one of these sticks. Yeah, and we have, you know, for wind, they said 20 large vessels in the world that already have some sort of wind assistance. You know, other companies are working on green hydrogen to power ships. You have other companies that are working on these electric robo ships. So the technology is out there. It's being tested. It's just a matter of is this going to catch on at scale? And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess our answer here is we sure hope so. Yeah, absolutely. We're praying for it. Yeah, exactly. And that'll do it for today's episode of The Planet Today. On Monday, we are going to be back with one of our biggest interviews yet. So please get excited, folks. (laughs) Yeah, so Matt spoke with Justin Gillis of the New York Times and federal energy policy advisor Hal Harvey about their new book and how we can get involved in political decision making. Really cool. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email. You know where to do it. Or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanusa produces our show every week and makes all the music you hear every episode. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.